Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. I am really excited to talk with today's guest, best-selling author, on-air host, and all-around amazing woman, Nancy Red, about, among other things, the nuts and bolts of parenting young children. Nancy is the author of a series of acclaimed books about women and body image, including diet drama, body drama, and pregnancy, OMG, and she's recently rocked the children's book world with Bedtime Bonnet, which celebrates black hair and hair care rituals. She's been the on-air host of a number of shows and series, most recently shows for Essence and The Griot, and has conducted on-air conversations with hundreds of thought leaders and celebrities. She and her husband, Rupak Jin, have two children, August 9 and little Nancy, six. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Nancy. <laughs> so excited to be here. You are my ground control parent and have been for a very long time. Yes, we have known each other for a long, long time. In fact, I'm so excited to have you here for so many reasons. You're awesome and thoughtful focus on our mutual space. You're focused on children and parenting, but as importantly, your status as a mom of a nine and a six-year-old. Because my kids are grown, but you are in the thick of it. You are in the nitty gritty years of parenting. And I'm excited to talk with you about how it's going and what you're learning. So let's get started. I am in the tumbleweeds of it. (laughs) Sometimes I'm running on top of the tumbleweed. Sometimes I'm part of the weeds making up the tumble. Uh, Sometimes the tumbleweeds run over me. (laughs) But I'm definitely, however you want to splice it, I'm in the middle of it. Yes, you are. (laughs) So... I often ask parents to parent the child that you have, not the one that you were or the one that you wished for. And so I I often start these conversations by asking about the child that you were. So tell me about little Nancy Red. (laughs) The OG little Nancy. The OG little Nancy. Not my current little Nancy, but me when I was little. Wow, that is quite the journey because... It's funny because my children have the quintessential idyllic childhood, right? Like with the new family and like everything is perfect. They get to see both their parents all the time. And we're just like mommy poppins and like awesome daddy. (laughs) And that's what my home life was like until my father committed suicide when I was four. So when I think about little Nancy... It's complicated because I was a hot mess. <laughs> I laugh because everyone always says, you're so much like your father. You're so much like your father. You're just like a, a fun whippoorwill. Like this is always like loud and out there. And, um, and I was like that, but I didn't have that person whom I was allegedly like to mm-hmm. that. And I'm not like my mom at all. <laughs> My mom is the most gracious 1950s lady. She had me late in life. She was born in 1940 and she had me when she was 41. So I was growing up with the mom that was all of my friends, first grade school teacher um, for their parents. So she was all of my friends, parents referred to my mom as her maiden name, Ms. Hodge. (laughs) And so we just skipped a generation. So here I am, this boisterous, nutty, wacky child that the teachers didn't know what to do with. And I had this very buttoned up mama who was a teacher. (laughs) (laughs) I felt very misunderstood and very wanting, wanting Mm -hmm. for something Mm -hmm. that um, eventually I kind of figured out what that was. But when you're six to 10 to 13 to 15, I mean, you don't know what that hole or that void is you're trying to fill. 
So lots, lots that I want to sort of back up on. Um, first of all, this was happening in Virginia. What part of Virginia? Southern Virginia, near North Carolina. A Southern girl. You were a Southern girl. Your mom was a bit of a Southern belle. Or? Oh, well, she was the Southern princess. I mean, she was like, <laughs> but um, no, everything was just very buttoned up. Respectability politics to the T, you know, it was just like you, they owned a country store and uh, it was, it was a very, very popular store. And so they were very careful about their image. And so then I get popped down. I, I mean, image, I, I, I can play the game. Mm-hmm. But I can walk the walk, but talking the talk is a more complicated <laughs> thing. Uh, so, so she was just always a guest because I just didn't care as much about appearances. Mm-hmm. Oh, I could do it. I could put it together. But my, my general status is what, what I look like right now talking to you, which is, <laughs> you know, my hair and some braids and a ponytail and, uh, and a, a little cardigan and no makeup, which, you know, my mom never went out. She wouldn't even take my brother to the emergency room when he twisted his ankle without putting her face on. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> different so, days, different days. Different days, different days. So, because so, I can't let this go on without asking a little bit about this. So, so you're four and your father commits suicide. And did you know at four that that's what happened? Or did you just know that he passed away? I, I don't, I think I knew, but what do you know it for? Right. So he was a politician in our, in our, in our area and he was a business leader and he was like a big proponent of uh, open housing and making sure black people got mortgages. So he was this like big dude who was mm-hmm. just like, you know, out there doing the most. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he grew up impoverished. He didn't have mm-hmm. the tools to deal with that transition from being like this, <laughs> he would always sign his love letters to my mom as H N I C, which I'm gonna leave. Oh that yeah, to yeah. <laughs> Anybody on this? Yes. If you don't know what H N I C is, ask somebody. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know the journey from having to like walk around town during school lunch breaks because he didn't have enough money to buy lunch and there was no free lunch program at the time to HNIC was mm-hmm. filled with a bunch of strife that he didn't, you know, have a lot of support dealing mm-hmm. with. So mm-hmm. um, my mom was like, you need to go see the psychiatrist, you know, like we need mm-hmm. to like work on this. And for a black man with that image at that time in the 1980s, I mean, it was just like, this yeah. is not how it rolled. Yeah, but back then that was not what we did. So the day of the psychiatry appointment, um, he just like made a choice and oh. what that choice was, of course, you know, a dumb choice was the choice that was made. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so luckily my mom was amazing. Cause part of her 1950s routine was you don't talk poorly about anybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, I didn't know that I didn't understand any of this. She was just like, your father's gone. He's a great man. And I was lucky because I'm in this small Southern town. So Everyone loved him. It was a travesty. It was a horrible travesty mm-hmm. for the whole town. So when I was growing up, I felt like I was being very much, you know, loved by the whole town. So I could go shopping and someone be like, oh, that's the little red girl. Your daddy helped me get my home. Or that's the little red book. Oh, let me show you. I still carry around the, the financial passbook that he helped me to get. So it worked out. But again, you still had the void and the hole and all that stuff. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You made it to Harvard. So clearly you were a bright little cookie. <laughs> little Nancy was a bright little cookie. How did your mom um, 
she was a teacher. So did you feel any weight of expectations academically or were you just kind of? My brother, I had an older brother. He was the oldest and the namesake of my dad. Wow. So he was everything. He was perfect. He was the valedictorian. He went to Yale. He was a national merit scholar. Thank goodness for that. Because I literally, I'm the great example of he just like shepherded me throughout Mm -hmm. this whole Mm -hmm. endeavor. Um, But my mom didn't have a lot of pressure on me. The only pressure she had on me, which was really difficult for me, was morality. And I'm so grateful because I have instilled that in my children because there's no pressure that's harder on you than morality mm-hmm. to be a good person, to have manners, to um, to be human to everyone you interact with and to know how to express you know, disdain or discontent without mm-hmm. becoming aggressive. There are so many great lessons that I just was driven crazy. Like my mom's catchphrase was, you're not going to embarrass this family. And it just drove me bananas because I was just, that felt like that mountain was just too high to surmount. I can get the A's, but are you telling me I cannot get into a tiffy with my girlfriends at lunch because the teacher's going to send you a note? You know, like this just seemed impossible. Her pressure on me was to be a good human. It was like the rest shall follow. Mm. You know, academics, she felt you either are inclined towards academics or not. I mean, of course we had expectations, but they were you know, meetable, but um, what she would just get upset about if there was any character flaw Mm, mm -hmm. that she perceived. And I think she was right. And I try to look at my kids like that too, because fortunately they are capable of the academics, but so many are, but you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of people are capable of empathy and they're not capable of like humanity or humanizing the common situations we're in. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think that's taking me farther honestly, than the academics. I can see that. And how amazing and good that you were able to take regularly hearing you're not going to embarrass this family, knowing that you had in some part of you the capacity to embarrass the family and that you were able to take- I did embarrass the family multiple times. (laughs) But you were able to take that and not let that um, shame you or um, make you feel badly. You were able to sort of see that for the value that it promoted, and that is to uh, be of good character and to pass that on to your kids. That is definitely a win. You turned a potential not win into a win because hearing parents out there who, who say to their children regularly, I, you will not embarrass this family, that sounds like the beginning of like a bad uh, miniseries. So. <laughs> she said it, but without hindering my freedom, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. She was never, okay. and, and that's so for example, uh, she she let me go to Harvard. A lot of my friends could not go away to college because they needed to be close to church. They couldn't miss grandma's, you know, 80th right. birthday. Because right. <laughs> um, and so she was really cool about that. She was like, "You you figure your own path to the character," and mm. it was never based in anything other than humanity. It was never based in religion. It was never based in superiority. It was literally the base standards of humanity. So, for example, when I decided I wanted to write a book, my very first book, and at the time I was selling it, <laughs> you know, it was called One Boob is Bigger Than the Other because it was about the female body and not being ashamed of the female mm-hmm. body. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, what will the pastor say? And I said, I don't know what the pastor going to say, but I mean, we're just going with this book. And she said, well, all right, you know, 
I believe in you. I've always been embarrassed about that part of my body too. So it doesn't seem like there's anything wrong here. I don't agree with it, but I'm not going to stop you from doing it. <laughs> um, and she recognized that the moral dilemma was not appropriate for that conversation. There was no morality issue. That was literally just like, I'm helping ladies feel good about their bodies. Black or white, that falls into the okay category. And so wait, but what was the ultimate title of the book? Body drama. So because the we're having a morality. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> it was, it was a different time. Uh, but you know, so it, yeah, she was, she was really good for her time. It's because she had a lot of freedom growing up and her mother had a lot of freedom growing up. So mm-hmm. I think one of the things that we see in the black community is all of this is so generational. Absolutely. And it takes a couple of generations to like smooth things into like a, a, a sanity and structure. So for example, my children, this is their first, my first generation of having a two parent household. So mm-hmm. I'm making sure that, and I'm cognizant of that. So I'm making sure that a lot of the things that I, like I grew up with a mom who did everything and I'm making sure that they're seeing parents who do two things. And I'm not trying to be that overbearing wife who's like doing everything. So yeah, I think mm-hmm. that so much of this is structural and generational. Mm-hmm. We're mm-hmm. in a great time of life where we have podcasts like GCP and people like you who are helping people navigate these nuances. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, it strikes me, you and I have talked about the family conversations that you've promoted with your children ever since they were really young is a perfect example of how you are both embracing this, the newness of a, of a two-parent household, but also pulling forward the, uh, the, the, morality and the character building that you got from your mom. So tell me a little bit about how those family conversations evolved and where they are now. To have this image in my head of this dinner table conversation, I mean, encouraging your children from a very young age to not only participate in conversations around the family dinner table, but to begin them. And um, well, it's when because my husband grew up doing that. That's what he's bringing to the table with his mm-hmm. awesome parent like best friend parent household i mean they're the best role models a married couple could have because they were just like ride or die Mm -hmm. and every they had to have dinner every night when we were in new york and we lived with them um for a couple of years dinner every night and it was wonderful and i was not used to that but that's how you get to build a family Mm -hmm. so when we moved back into our own little world here in los angeles it was so much fun to have that recreated here mm-hmm. and, and he did that that's really on him because i again would love to be like holding myself up writing always having an excuse and <laughs> it's just like there are no excuses you can take 30 minutes and mm-hmm. we're having family dinner together i'm not hungry you can have some water or tea while everyone else <laughs> and we'll have a conversation uh and it and when we were with our parents i and my, our children were very young I was really into it. And especially with the little ones. And it always starts so awkward because how do you teach a child to have a conversation? And mm-hmm. I think it's especially important for this generation who do not have many opportunities to have conversations about, about much. You start with the two-year-olds, like, you know, we're at dinner with the grandparents. Like, do you have a question for Dada? <laughs> I didn't have a, come up with a question for Dada. How was your day, Dada? What did you do? Dada. The grandparents would go into it like my day was great. I went to the lab and I helped come up with a cure for lung cancer. That is interesting. Do you have a question for me? <laughs> it was so cute. But now that's evolved in my once very you know, staccato toddler it's now turned into this dynamic conversationalist nine-year-old. And he's just precious. And I mean, I feel like 
if we were not in pandemic, he'd do great in debate because he's been <laughs> having a quote unquote conversation mm-hmm. with multiple types of people for seven years. For mm-hmm. seven years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. No, so, absolutely. Absolutely. We, we definitely, um, now that my children are older, especially really value the time that we have as a family around the table. It's a good opportunity to t- practice bizarre theories you may have that you get shot down immediately, but it's shot down by people who love you. So it doesn't hurt so much. It, it, there is, um, there is something to be said in, in this, and I'm going to sound like the, the, um, older person that I am, but in a world where it's, it's brain to thumb very quickly, there's not a lot of processing time and, and speed of response is, is privileged over almost everything else. It's nice to have opportunities where you can blurt something out, but it's, it is, it's not out forever. It can be shot down and it's not shot down in front of a throng of people or what you learn is beyond whatever you're saying. You're, you're learning how to express yourself and the emotional intelligence that comes with being empathetic or maybe shifting your tone a little if you see the other person's feelings are getting hurt. Well, just yesterday we were having a conversation and, and it was some conversation. My children love to like talk about God and, and like, where are those? Because I'm come from a Christian background. My husband's Hindu. So, you know, we just have the, we allow open-ended conversations. We're not telling them what to think. Cause it's like, and I, my statements always, so <laughs> the question is, mommy, what do you think about God? So I said, well, I always subscribe to the the concept that I'm smart enough to know that there's a higher power, but I'm not smart enough to think that I know what it is. And so then my daughter says something. So then my son came back with a really great statement spoken very nicely. He said something like, well, then why does he let people die or something like that? Mm-hmm. And before she could answer, he, he followed that very, like, very gracious, interesting question up with, didn't think I'd ask you that one, did you? <laughs> and so I said, you had me, son. You were just so great. And then you lost us all with that snarky remark. And so it's like, if without that, he would do that in the real world and might mm-hmm. lose a fan or a friend mm-hmm. or a job mm-hmm. opportunity. Absolutely. <laughs> and and you, you know, these table conversations that we're talking about aren't just limited to two parent families. My goodness, you can have you it, single mom, everybody. If just the concept of gathering with your children, no matter how old they are, sitting, making them sit at the table with you and engage you in some kind of conversation, even if it's as simple as what did you do today? And then not just nothing. I mean, you have to answer the question. It's a really good experience for your kids to be able to. And, and for you, you can hear how they express themselves. You do it without judgment. Don't correct them. I mean, it's it's a great um, opportunity that I think um, we don't think about, although we probably think about it a little bit more during this pandemic, which is, I want to shift the conversation a little. We all know about the horrors of the pandemic and, and they are real and ongoing, but there are some, um, there are some aspects of this togetherness that have actually proven to be beneficial. We, we've talked about schooling. You, you've had a really interesting adventure in schooling with your children <laughs> in that they've gone from private school to homeschool to no, one is in public school and the other one is still in, in a private school. Is that correct? Is that? There are in so many different types of schools and I don't know where we're going to end up, but <laughs> Carol has been through my schooling journey since <laughs> I was doing the whole New York city private school drama. It was so awful. And shout out to anybody who can just figure out a school that works for their kids. I remember my mom, again, the first grade school teacher from the 1950s, has always said that you are your child's teacher. You know, whatever they're going to school, that's socialization and mm, babysitting. Absolutely. 
Like you are the one that's in control of that. I did not listen. I thought that she was operating some old textbook. It's like these teachers and, you know, but when you have, it doesn't matter if you're in a private school with 15 kids in the class or if you're in a public school with 40 kids in the class, you need to be doing that stuff at home. Even if you have a quote unquote talented child who can get all their work done, that means that you need to encourage them to go beyond whatever that basic work is or else you're missing a blessing for themselves, for, for like their enrichment. The school journey for me has been the most difficult. And hilariously, I have found that online school in the pandemic for one of my children has been just such a blessing because a lot of the socialization issues that were causing friction in our household are now muted by the, literally muted. <laughs> because Zoom, everyone's just ahead. You know, no, there's no cootie catching. There's no shenanigans at the lunch table. There's no lunch food that you don't know whether or not they ate. I just enjoy knowing that my children have actually eaten a midday meal. It's really mm-hmm. nice because sometimes I would get the little lunch box back home. I was like, I don't know what's happening. This isn't even your lunch. Did you eat lunch? What is this? I don't know what's going on. <laughs> it's very confusing. These are all small, silly little <laughs> blessings. Um, but also, I have found just being able to call the individuals my children communicate with has been a a small blessing in this time because at this formative age, they start to pick up habits and behaviors and demeanors from the individuals that they are closest with. Well, now the individuals they're closest with are me and my husband. (laughs) So they're picking up our demeanor and our habits versus like that random kid who just decided to call everyone annoying. And then my daughter went into a panic attack thinking she was annoying. And I had to explain what's going on. Like, it's not about you, but that doesn't mean anything. So, you know, so for like months, this one girl called my daughter annoying at school and my daughter like kind of receded into herself. And I had to explain, which I don't think it was possible for a five-year-old to fully understand that person came to the talent show. And they saw you play piano. And then there is a direct relationship to the very next day, them deciding you were annoying. That's too much for a five-year-old to fully Oh, absolutely. You know, can't explain that. (laughs) So so I'm just happy. She's just sitting here with her little piano by herself. (laughs) Being annoying. So, so I really want to stay with that for a minute because that's really, it's something I actually hadn't thought of. This opportunity to be with your kids, the ability to hit the reset button on some of the things that you maybe hadn't even thought of were interfering with their growth. I mean, you know, your your daughter is free from the random being called annoying by a child. I mean, you're 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 called them haters. (laughs) Yes. Random haters. Exactly. (laughs) The youth do call them haters. Yes. (laughs) I will borrow that phrase from the youth. (laughs) Random haters who are just trying to bring her down at five. <laughs> I mean, but maybe yeah, say five, but that, by that's the way, that's where the behavior begins. I was just going to say, the, I want you to say, the child was not being a conscious hater. I have just oh, no. been a study of human behavior for 39 years. <laughs> and I knew they were being a hater because just before the talent show, they were have rucking it up at McDonald's, having a good time, going through yeah. the little play space so her, so the parent and I could have a, a mom date <laughs> yeah uh, so it's just that humanity is fragile and difficult 
And mm-hmm. we've talked a lot about when to allow real humanity to infuse our child's mindset and our child's belief about themselves. And I'm a big fan of later rather than sooner, especially with our, you know, brown youth, because mm-hmm. um, it, 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 it's a lot to deal with the real world. It's a lot, you know, and my five-year-old was not ready for someone to call her annoying and she couldn't understand <laughs> that like, later in effect. And it's not actually because she's awesome. Uh, there was actually, we were talking, Carol, about how I like to watch The Simpsons with the kids because mm-hmm. there are great learning lessons. And they actually was able to make the correlation between what happened with the talent show and the, the annoying comment with Homer Simpson in one episode figures out why he's dumb. When he was a kid, there was a pencil stuck in his nose. So he took the pencil out of his nose and was really smart. And all the kids started picking on him. So he stuck the pencil back up in his nose. And the rest was history. So I explained, mm. I was like, okay, that's very much like what happened at the talent show. Like, you know, you could have just stopped playing piano and, and you know, it was allowed to not be, to not be annoying, but you know, it's better to just be awesome and ignore the haters. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, it is things, things, the pandemic has created an environment where first of all, parents can notice things like that because had this been a non-pandemic event, your daughter would have been a little sad. You wouldn't have noticed. And, you know, she would have had whatever reaction she would have had. And and maybe at that young age, it w- would have really kind of seared her or scarred her. Um, and now no, you would can- have noticed, but I would still have not, I wouldn't have been able to do anything about it really other right. than the emotional, like bolstering. Right. Mm-hmm, but because mm-hmm. I was still going to send her to school. You know, that's the thing. Right. And I, I, I think that we're going to see a lot of people, who can, which is a whole other asterisk, perhaps rethink school for their children mm. and how, especially the teenagers, my children aren't teenagers yet, just thank goodness, but it is just really hard to be a teenager. And my brother is an educator and he works for a, an, an awesome not-for-profit in Boston called The Possible Project. And he laughs because he has these dorky teenagers who just, they don't keep their screens on, he'll, he'll talk, but they're so engaged with the material because they can be dorks online. You can't be a dork in many schools, not all schools, but in many schools, being a dork is very difficult. Uh, but dorks, Dorks are important, and we all have a dorky side that we need to blossom. Because I mean, we call ourselves a family of dorks because we're dorkly enthusiastic about almost <laughs> everything. It's like we're going grilling tonight. We're going to go grill. Yes. <laughs> we're going to like you know watch a PBS special. <laughs> we're going to clean. I mean, <laughs> I remember I have a nine and a six year old, so this is still working. Right. Rubak and I right. feel like we have a finite amount of time for these kids or ready to like leave us fully alone. We are going to take advantage of it and just be ridiculous and dorky because you know how it is, empty nester. Those days are fleeting. <laughs> right, right. And and actually what you do in those formative years really does impact how it turns out when they're much older. Certainly I was the dork queen. I mean, I was all about being enthusiastic about everything or at least uh, uh, as as much as I could. And so now we reap the benefits of everybody really wanting to be around. So Nancy, you know, that makes me think of something that we've talked about uh, before and something that I know that you are a big proponent of, and that is being with your, teaching your family to have fun or, or the value of having a good time in your family. And um, can you talk a little bit about sort of what kind of fun that you guys try to promote and, and how that comes about? I think and everyone has different variants of this. I think life should be lived in an enjoyable way. 
Mm-hmm. There's struggles. There's struggles and stress. And if if you're not going through something hardcore at the moment, mm-hmm. then just kind of enjoy that. Because as my brother says, because this moment's not gonna last. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna have something that takes mm-hmm. all this fun away. So we may as well have the fun when mm-hmm. fun can be had. So for example, my son's idea of fun is a tickle party at this point in the pandemic, because I'm just trying to survive. We probably have two or three tickle parties a day. Um, (laughs) We're just doing what we have to do to get through. And that works out because my daughter loves tickles. My husband loves tickle, tickle party. That's great. My daughter loves music and she loves to dance and sing and karaoke. I think somehow my son is allergic to music. Like he cannot stand music with that's not instrument. He loves instrumental music, but Mm -hmm. if there's Words, especially sad words. Oh my goodness. It's just so much for him. We have to have, to have this great opportunity to teach him. You have to acknowledge other people's fun. You can't mm-hmm. just be dismissive because it's not something that you subscribe to. Mm-hmm. So creating worlds where, I mean, this has been a great opportunity for all of us to figure out ways to respect others. Mm-hmm their spaces you know one other thing that you've said which i really like is that this opportunity be having your children have to spend so much time without their friends all around is a great opportunity to teach them the importance of being their own best friends if if you'll it's a bit of a cliche but of of valuing their own time by themselves i mean as one who was a really extroverted little kid wanted nothing more than to be surrounded by friends and doing things it took me a long time to appreciate um, the importance of being able to entertain myself and, and being by myself. And, and here, it's a golden opportunity. My mom always <laughs> said, if you think you have more than five real friends in this world, you are fooling yourself. Because everyone had so many more friends than me. They were, they were more out there. Like, again, my mom was much older than my friend's mom. She was their first grade school teacher. So if the moms were getting together for like a slip and slide party, my mom was afraid of slip and slides. I completely understand. I was like, because <laughs> kid had died from a slip and slide. And she was not about to let me die from the slip and slide. So I, get, I just think so many things I didn't get to do because some child died. I didn't get to have a real Christmas tree because some child died in a house fire. Oh, the no. I you know, all kinds of things. Which, you know what? Again, can you blame her? I mm-hmm. also would come from a risk-averse perspective where I in her shoes. Um, but so I was so frustrated because I had like two friends and, and they had many other friends than me. I was no one's first friend. Um, but it taught me how to entertain myself. It taught me um, how to be resilient. And also it taught me to give, once I came into a position where I had many more friends, to give side eye to questionable behavior that did not seem very friendly. So mm-hmm. I'm instilling that same skepticism in my children who are still in the position where they, they want their friends. What's interesting about this pandemic, we've tried the play dates with the children I was always skeptical about. <laughs> and when the tactile experience of just being together is taken away mm-hmm. and you just have to have that, that conversation, you see that there's little there. Um, some kids just like, you can just, they, they weren't, they weren't acting right in school and the, nothing. This is not, this situation is not improved. Mm-hmm. Um, so that none of the children in any of these anecdotes have anything other than the best of care. I mean, loved mm-hmm. children, mm-hmm. like who are lovely parents, mm-hmm. but they don't get a chance to figure themselves out. And I know because I was one of those parents who wasn't giving my kids a chance to figure themselves out. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Until I had to have a, a, a basically a funeral for pre pandemic me. And I just realized, <laughs> oh, like, this is not, I, I can't, I'm not going to win, but I can help my kids win. Like I, I'm just going to, I had to give up. 
because mm-hmm. I can't do much at this juncture. I'm not going to be able to write another book. <laughs> I'm just going to have to like, have a moment. We will get back to this once this vaccine gets distributed. Well, um, since I know that you have another book on your plate, let's let's assure everybody you will write another book. You may not be able to write it right now. Okay, let me make up. I can write children's books, another <laughs> nonfiction book. That's going to be some time. I really like what you said about a funeral for the pre-pandemic you. I mean, I, I don't know that everybody needs to do that per se, but just trying to take a minute and just living with the fact that this pandemic has dramatically impacted the way that we adults who are around children have to conduct ourselves for the time being and for the foreseeable future. And instead of stressing out, I mean, people have to work, have to work, of course, they're, they're figuring out ways to manage it. And I can't imagine that in any household, working from home with your children around you is, is you're producing better product than maybe you're making it work, but you're not producing better product than when you had an office with doors that closed and kept out the outside. So this concept of just acknowledging this is terrible. We are not our best selves as people, as parents in this moment, but there's an opportunity to to create some circumstances where maybe there are some better selves that can come out of it. It sounds like that's what you guys are doing. Mm -hmm. This grew us up. I've been at home being mommy poppins for a whole year. Mm -hmm. And my brother laughed. He was just like, it's been a journey for you. (laughs) He was like, but you're a better person for it Mm -hmm. because, because I have just had to to get some grit and Mm -hmm. to get it together and do what my mom did, which is put my children first. And my children were accessories. And you know, in New York, Carol, it's so easy for children to be accessories. And they were accessories that I loved. And like, I was, you know, but I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do as a, as a parent. Mm -hmm. And then in Los Angeles, I tried to make them accessories, but my oldest was not having that. He needed his mama. (laughs) it's just been really interesting just finally saying, you know what? I, I just, I will, re- I release and I'll get back to me in a little bit and taking that 150% and, and going with it. Parents can let themselves be okay with understanding that there's no, um, forget perfection. There's hardly any kind of just hitting the average here. I mean, the, we're all going to do the best that we can, but that all we can do is the best that we can do. And when we're now in circumstances where all of our responsibilities surround us 24 seven, as opposed to our being able to compartmentalize them, it can be really overwhelming. I think it's really important to, to just think about what we've been talking about, the upsides to it. I mean, you know, your kids now better than you ever did. Out and they know I know them in and out. I can look at their face and instantly know I get it so intensely. And it is because we have had 300 family dinners because we are really, we're very bubbly. I am keeping everybody safe and myself safe. I wiped, I mean, I'm I'm that mom Mm -hmm. because I know if I got COVID and something happened to me, this whole, all the cards would fall. I can't. Before we we end, I, I need to ask you. A little bit about something that you've been all over the press about, and that is your latest creation. <laughs> your, your, that is Bedtime Bonnet. And, and the cool thing about that book is that it grew out of an experience with your daughter. In that, <laughs> So tell us a little bit about Bedtime Bonnet. Bedtime Bonnet is the first children's book to really talk about black nighttime hair rituals. And mm-hmm. it stemmed from when it was time for my daughter to wear a bonnet. Like, Carol, do you wear something on your head at night? 
I do not, but I should. <laughs> so <laughs> okay, I'm awesome. realizing this. <laughs> uh, no, also what's funny is um, I, a lot of people, I'm not, I'm not blowing up your spot, Carol, but a lot of people <laughs> I talk to are like, I do not. And then in private, they're open their little, you know, do rag, but that's okay. I, I believe. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I, I really should. When I was little, I would put a scarf on my head, especially if I had my hair pin curled up these days, I'm kind of natural. And, but don't let me be the example. I get it. I, I grew up with bedtime bonnets. So did, you grow up, did, you, did your daughter wear something on her hair? She it? does. And she, okay. she has, uh, unfortunately, she, her mother did not show her the ways, but she does. She's, my mother has gotten her bonnet. So yeah. Okay. So you understand. Okay, this is not judgment because again, it has to be passed down. So I, again, I was like living this life, was like bopping all around, had all these nannies. My daughter has very thick, curly hair, and I had to go someplace for a week. <laughs> so I get back in town, and my daughter's, I mean, I've never seen anything like this. It was just like this, yeah, it's a living being. And mm-hmm. I started trying to comb it, and the screams, you would not believe, to the point where I had to just, I just was so overwhelmed. I had to get on a plane and go to my mom with my daughter. So she could comb the hair. Because I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't want to cut it out. So we end this and she gets the tangles out and we had to cut some of them out. And it was fine. And it was, I, was, I felt like such a bad mom. And she just looks, she's like, this child needs a bonnet. I don't know what you're doing. So <laughs> I was like, oh my God, you're so right. And so I went to put the bonnet on her. She's like, I'm not wearing this. <laughs> and I was like, you have to wear it. She's like, I don't see anybody else wearing this. And she, I was like, that's irrelevant. You need to wear this bonnet. And she was like, Dot McStuffins doesn't wear a bonnet. Uh, Oh my God, Dot McStuffins does not wear a bonnet. And that is egregious. (laughs) (laughs) So I immediately, I have, I immediately emailed my husband. I was like, I think I have figured out my first children's book because I can't find a children's book on this bonnet. And Mm -hmm. if my daughter saw the bonnet, anywhere she would wear the bonnet and so i just was like this is what's got me and i went to a random house and they were like are you sure are you sure of this tradition i was like it's like i am so sure it's not just me and this and i was joking with i was like this is telling means you don't have any black friends (laughs) (laughs) um and so so there we are that's that's the bonnet that's it's a delightful book with amazing illustrations. The whole family wears their version of the head rag at night. Everybody puts their hair up in different ways and it's celebrated. It's a wonderful book. And if those, even if those of you, even if you have children that are a little older, it's a still an adorable book. Get it for them because they will need it to give it to their children so what that everybody that? knows. It's also like just normalizing this very normal part of our life culture that just, just has been hidden from society. It's just not even that serious. It's no, just on it. Absolutely, absolutely. So There's listen, Nancy, I could talk to you forever, but I'm going to have to wrap it up here. So first of all, Nancy, before we get to the bonus round, I want to thank you so much. It is always delightful to speak with you. And today... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really been amazing. I, I love all of the great advice you've had. I love hearing about sort of frontline stories, like in the moment parenting of little ones. And I'm sure everyone listening really appreciates your, your parenting wisdom. So I have two questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. The first one is what is your favorite poem? Okay. My favorite poem. I love th- I was, I love this question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So my favorite poem is by August Wilson. 
Mm-hmm. And it is, he has this poem called A Poem for My Grandfather. And so my son is partly named for August Wilson. He's, but like August Wilson, I never met any of my grandfathers. So this is a poem for the, the grandfather that he envisioned. It's very interesting. This poem, it simultaneously intoxicates and soothes me. Secondly, your favorite two children's books. And yes, you are allowed to include your own. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I already said my first one, which is Bedtime <laughs> Uh, and uh, my second favorite children's book, it's The Little Engine That Could. Oh, I and love that book. It's been with me since I was, before my father died. I always loved it. And always, my mom kept everything. And when I grew older and became a teenager, my very first out of uh, hometown competition where I had to go by myself, I was maybe 15 or 16. And I was in, I'm a little country girl, you know. <laughs> And I was with the big city folks, and I didn't feel like I was up to par with that competition. And my mom FedExed me the the little book, the dog-eared book of mine. Oh. Little and she wrote in her beautiful handwriting. Her handwriting. Back then, like, <laughs> and she said, I think you can too. Love, mom. And oh. it just was so great when I went on to compete for Miss Virginia, and I was very nervous about that. She sent me the same book. And she was like, I still think you can love. (laughs) And so it just brings me so much joy. And it's just such a testament to the small things that children remember parenting. There's the macro parenting, which is the dinners and stuff. But there's also those little sparks of joy that are just these tiny moments that can mean so much to your child's life. Absolutely. Nancy, thank you so much. Great, great, great answers to the round and great answers all around. So thank you so much for being with us. And we look forward to what's next. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Nancy, thank you so much for being with us today and talking about children and children in the pandemic and raising young children. It was chock full of really great parenting wisdom and advice. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review where you find your podcasts and tell your friends. In the meantime, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at www.groundcontrolparenting.com for tons of parenting info and advice. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. Please send comments and questions on any of these platforms because we really want to hear from you. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.